Uh, Last week we concluded Psalm chapter 23, and we learned of the greatest friendship that we could ever have, Uh, friendship with God himself. Remember, Jesus as the greatest shepherd and the most gracious friend. I don't know what that did for you this week, but through my studies and through my own meditation and preparation, it's really done some work on my own heart. Jesus is not only holy, he is, he is not only Savior, he's also my closest friend. And I pray that that continues to work in your heart over the summer. And what I love most is that he delights to commune with us. Sometimes we just don't feel like that, right? Like the Lord delights to be in our presence. Well, he does. And so he overflows us with his grace. He is, he is always near. He is always trustworthy. Remember, he is preparing a table before us right now. And he's ultimately preparing a place for us with him for all eternity. And so as we continue through the summer, I've been looking through the Psalms and trying to figure out what I want to preach through. And the problem is, is that every Psalm is so good, right? And summer is so short. We only have so much time, but we'll go back to the Psalms always and be preaching through them. So maybe in my lifetime, we'll preach through all of the Psalms, but we'll see. I want to preach them all. Well, if you noticed, uh, as we started the Psalms, we started in Psalm 19. This was uh, for a reason. We wanted to start with a foundation. It was a foundational Psalm. Remember, it began with the the undeniable existence of God through general revelation. We cannot look at creation and say God is not there. He is here. He is powerful. He is majestic. And in the latter half of Psalm 19, we learned that uh, in order to know that God, we have to have special revelation. He has to speak to us. And he's given us his word, his, his special revelation to man so that we can come to know him, to know his son, to know him intimately, to have salvation. That is a foundational psalm for us. And then, and then we went to Psalm 23, which showed us that God cares for us intimately. So he's revealed himself to us, but he also cares for us like a shepherd intimately. He knows us, he guides us, he protects us, he befriends us. And so then I thought about, what am I going to preach about this week? Well, I decided to go to Psalm chapter 73. You can open up to Psalm chapter 73. It really builds off these first two Psalms. These Psalms that have taught us that God saves us so perfectly. He shepherds us so completely. And this Psalm is going to highlight the Christian life a little bit for us. It's going to show us that the Christian life is hard. It is hard. Anybody here agree that the following Christ can be really hard, right? Yeah, we can all attest to that. Following Christ in this world sometimes is a great challenge. Sometimes we think that, um, or it's preached that you come to Christ, everything's going to be just great, right? Everything's going to be perfect. You'll have no more worries, but it's just not the truth. The Christian life is hard. And the reality for true Christ followers is this, is the nearer that you are to God, the more faithful that you walk with him, the harder things seem to get. The harder things seem to get, it's true. Even though we are eternally saved by the blood of Jesus, we're going to have moments of struggle. We're going to have moments of strife, even with our faith. And so today we're going to see in Psalm 73 an example of this. It's going to speak to this reality. It's going to bring God's wisdom to bear on the problem. 
to help us with this problem. So we're going to see this, this psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73. Asaph was a choir master. He was a Levitical priest who was in charge of, of leading choirs, writing music. But we're going to see insight into his own struggle. We're going to witness a progression in his heart from going from doubt to a heart full of strength. We get to witness a psalmist here openly and honestly disclose his battle, and it's the common battle that we all share. You know, as, as we live in this world, and, and the secular world is all around us, it seems to be flourishing. It seems to be at ease. It seems to be in abundance. And our faithfulness to the Lord in our lives also often brings hardship. Sometimes we can get ourselves in the gutter, right? We can get down about our faith. But today, through this testimony of Asaph, we're going to see, we're going to see that we need to prepare our hearts for the road that is ahead as Christians. So let's pray. We need the Lord's wisdom. We need his help. Lord, we do thank you for your abundant mercy and grace towards us sinners who don't deserve it. Lord, we come before your word this morning, this this, this wisdom psalm, and we seek your wisdom. We seek your truth. We seek your knowledge because we bring nothing. Lord, our hearts want to go sideways. Our hearts want to go their own way. And Lord, even as Christians, we, we struggle with our faith at times. We struggle with doubt. And so we ask for your help this morning to use this psalm to build us up, to equip us, to teach us, to admonish us, to guide us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work deeply in our hearts, deeply in the text, deeply in our lives that you will do what only you can do, that you will transform, that you will save, all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start in verses 1 to 3. So Psalm chapter 73. We're just going to look at the first three verses right now. It's a psalm of Asaph. And he says, Truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So the first thing we want you to see here is is that we need to prepare our hearts for doubt. We need to prepare our hearts for doubt because the struggle is real, it is a real struggle. And I love this opening sentence here. And it really sets the stage for the whole psalm. Namely, that God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. We are a part of the new Israel. We are found in Jesus Christ. We are his people. He is good to his people. We talked about this a lot last week. Last week we focused on on surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. God is always good to his people all the days of your life. To those who he has saved from sin and darkness. And this is really the thesis of this psalm, that God is good to Israel. In preaching we call this the nail. This is the meaning of this text. It's also the solution. It's it's a journey of the heart of this psalmist. It's a journey that we're going to witness today 
And, and in fact, the psalmist doesn't just say that God is good to his people. What does he say? He says, truly, God is good to his people. Your version may say, surely, God is good to Israel. So this word, surely, truly, it really speaks of an experiential knowledge. This is something that has been tested. Right? It's a knowledge that only comes from, from experience, right? To say surely, truly speaks of a tested truth. So let me ask you this morning. In your heart, is that what you say towards God? Surely, truly, God is good to me. I have experienced this. I have tasted this. I know this to be true. Maybe you've heard all your life, you've been to church, and you've heard God is good. But now you have walked a little bit of life as a Christian, and you have experienced the hardships that come with life, just life itself. And you've walked through, you've come through the other side, and you look back, and you can say, surely God is good to me. He has brought me through those trials. He has been with me by my side. Truly God is good. Maybe uh, something really hard has come into your life. Maybe you've had a crisis of faith, but God has shown himself to be good. That's what the psalmist is introducing us to here before he takes us on this journey of his heart. So then next we see him introducing us to the heart. He says, surely God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. So pure in heart here simply means those who are fully devoted to the Lord. A person who is devoted to him. It, it doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean without sin. It's the same sense from Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Fully devoted. It's a complete surrender of your heart to the Lord. And so what the psalmist is saying here is that the Lord fully loves those who fully love him those who are fully devoted to him. That's the foundation here that he's setting. And then he re reveals to us that in his life, along this journey, he forgot this. He was struggling with the goodness of God towards him. He says in verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here he's being really vulnerable with us. He's being extremely honest. He's revealing to us that, that he was almost falling away from what he knew to be true. He was headed in a disastrous direction. Although he knew or he heard that God was good to those who are pure in heart, He's also looking onto the world and he's witnessing the wickedness of the world and that those who are wicked at heart are somehow receiving a blessing from the Lord. And he was envious of them. They were prospering. And this word prosperity here comes from the word shalom, which is peace. They were experiencing ease, peace. And so as he looked upon this, this was causing him a great crisis of faith. It was, it was leading him to, to struggle to the point of, of turning away from it all. Questioning everything. 
So the psalmist here, instead of being pure in heart, we see that his heart was full of doubt. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what you're dealing with. But you may be doubting the Lord this morning. You may be doubting the truth of what we're trying to teach at this church. You may be doubting the reality of God, the reality of his goodness. I don't know where you are. Are you struggling to believe this morning? Are you struggling to believe? Well, maybe your heart is full of doubt. But by example of the psalmist Asaph here, you need to know that you're not alone. You're not alone in this struggle. This is a common struggle. The struggle is real. Every one of our hearts are prone to doubt. We're prone to question. And we're also prone to slipping and stumbling in our faith. Let me just be clear about that. A Christian can stumble in his faith and not lose his faith, right? If you are saved in Jesus Christ, you are saved forever. You cannot fall away from him. If he has saved you, you are saved forever. But you can fall and you can stumble and have doubt at times. And sometimes we stumble when we begin to measure God's goodness by keeping our eyes down here. Keeping our eyes on the world. And so all of us this morning need to acknowledge that we struggle with this at times. And we're going to battle with this. We're going to battle with low times. We're going to battle with despair. This is why we need each other, right? Some people are stronger than others. Some people stumble more. We need each other. We need to be pointing each other to this book. Learning about the Lord. Helping us along the way. You know, one of the greatest preachers of all time, Charles Spurgeon, he struggled with doubt as well. He said, some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others and of establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. It's common. Struggling and doubting is real. It's common. And we should expect it to some extent. And the Lord wants you to know this, that that even though it's common, even though that we could expect it, it's dangerous. It's slippery. It can cripple your faith. And it's a place that you don't want to stay. And so it needs to be engaged. It needs to be confronted. And so we're going to see that in these next few sections. But first, we're going to see some more of the psalmist revealing his hand. He's going to show you this root cause of his slipping, his temptation, the things that are tempting his heart away from the goodness of God. So I'm going to go back to verse 3, and then we'll read the rest up to verse 12. He said, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now he's going to explain that. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. 
Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in their riches. From this section, we need to know this, that we need to prepare our hearts for envy. Prepare your hearts for envy. The world is enticing. And we see the psalmist here clearly showing us the reason for his doubt. He already started showing us in verse 3 that it was envy for the prosperity of the wicked that has been leading him astray. And so he describes this even further for us here. He shows us the depth of this temptation. We just read that he basically says, even though he knows these unbelievers are not pure in heart, look at how great their lives are. Look at how blessed they are. They seem to be receiving God's goodness towards them, even though they don't love him. They seem to have no concerns. They're living a carefree life. In verse 4 and 5, he shows us that they don't seem to be suffering. They're not experiencing ailments. They don't have pain. The NIV translation here says that they are free from the burdens of life. Everything seems to come easily to these people. Their bodies are fat and sleek. This is a language used for, for well-fed animals. Kim is working at the at a veterinarian clinic now, and, and uh, this dog came in this week, beautiful uh, show dog, and Kim went over to greet the dog and pet the dog, and it had the softest, supple, shiny, beautiful hair that you could imagine. So Kim asked the owner, how do you get hair like this on a dog? Well, the owner said, well, it's a well-fed dog. It gets a, it gets a raw food diet. It's really well-fed. It's the same sense that we're talking about with these people. They're well-fed. They have the best of food. Their pantries are full. They're not in trouble like the rest of mankind. So trouble here means toil. It means burden. These wicked sinners, they're free from the common burden that every man has inherited since the garden. Remember the curse in the garden. Men are cursed with toiling against the weeds and the thorns to get food. Well, these people, they don't seem to be cursed. They don't seem to be stricken like the rest of us. It's like he's looking to these people, looking to the world. And he's saying, what's the deal, God? What's going on here? Why are these people so blessed while your people are suffering? They look like the ones who are receiving your favor. They look like the ones that you were holding near, that you were holding dear. He goes on to show that these people have no regard for God. And they have no regard for his commandments. They are full of pride, verse 6. They are violent, Verse 7, they are, they are, their eyes swell with fatness, which means they exude the abundance and they parade that unrighteous wealth around. Verse 8, their hearts overflow with follies, foolishness. Meaning instead of having pure hearts after the Lord, their hearts are continually scheming to have more and more irregardless of the goodness of God. Nothing will get in the way. No conscience, no conviction, no God will come between them and power, and yet they are being blessed. 
We even see this in how they speak in verse 8. They scoff and they speak with malice, just absolute pure evil. They threaten oppression to those who don't fall in line. He says they, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. I love that poetic picture. Picture a tongue strutting through the earth in pride. And the psalmist sees that they, they have no room for God at all. In fact, they hate God. And they boast in the face of God. Verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? You're questioning the reality of God, questioning his truth and his wisdom. This God is not all wise. He is, he is not all knowing. And what they have done is they have placed themselves in the place of God. This is the world around him. And what's worse than this is that God's people, instead of being repelled by these people, they are attracted to these people. Verse 10, he says, Therefore his people turn back to them, to the wicked, and find no fault in them. This original translation here of the Hebrew is this. It's, the waters of a full cup are drained by them. Meaning, those who are attracted to the wicked, they, they fill their cup up with the ways of the wicked. They drink it all in. I don't know if that seems crazy to you. It seems opposite of what should be happening, but, but the faithful can be attracted to these people. They see these anti-God, self-seeking, boastful people, and they are attracted to them. Sometimes we look at the success and the richness, riches and the beauty and the ease of this world around us, and it begins to cloud our eyes. It pulls us in. It attracts us. Friends, if we're truly honest with one another, we can see this at work in our hearts, right? It may be in a smaller way or a more overt way, but we can see this in our hearts. There is something appealing about the ways of the world. Verse 12, behold, look. He says, look, these are the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase in their riches. They seem to be just flourishing and receiving more and more and more of abundance. Why, Lord? Why do they get all this? I don't know if you've asked that question in your heart looking in the world. Why do they get that? I deserve that. It's a common struggle. Well, our hearts are prone to doubt. There, there's been a, quite a few studies over the last 10, 15 years in the church, kind of measuring the results of, of faithfulness and effectiveness in the church. And one of the saddest uh, things they've discovered is that 70 to 80% of our young people, it's kids being raised in the church, 70 to 80% of them in the church, when they leave mom and dad's home, they leave the church. Some come back later in their 30s but not very many. They've slipped. They've stumbled away from their biblical foundations. Yes, some have never believed. They've never truly believed yet, and that's why they've left. But some have walked away from the foundations set before them. They, they've gone after and chased after the wickedness and the prosperity of the world. And this is not just a young person's problem, right? 
Many of our churches today are full of people who are just there for attendance, just there for a checkbox, but their hearts and their minds are in the world. Their hearts are not pure, fully devoted to the Lord. The world is enticing, it's, it's attractive. So we need to prepare our hearts for that. We need to prepare our children's hearts for that. The world promises so much and it easily traps us. The temporary pleasures of, of money, of success, of health, of sex, it's all lies. They are all temporary pleasures. And we are attracted to it. One thing we have to remember is that behind this is power. Behind temptation is power. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is actively pursuing you. Ephesians 2.2 tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. There is power at work against you. He still wields his power in the invisible realm of this world. Jesus says in John 10.10 that he is a thief. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. And he uses the things of this world to do so. Ephesians 6.12 We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is power behind this. There is power. Satan wields it to tempt you towards the world. So I bring this up just to open our eyes with this real. Sometimes we close our eyes off to that, right? But it's true, it's real. We need to open our eyes because it's not a game. There is powerful forces at work against us. Evil masquerades as light. Satan and his demons are the greatest students of this world. Satan is not like God. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know what you think, but they study you. They study you by what you want to do. And they bring the world in to try to meet those desires. One of the greatest ways, this is an example, Satan uses his power against us. Just think about social media, for example. This gives us windows into each other's lives, windows that are controlled and they are measured. So just like this psalmist looking out on the world all around him and seeing the attractiveness of the world, we also have those windows into the world as well, right in our hands, 24-7 access. And with that also comes this deadly game of comparison. Wow, look at what they're doing. Where are they at now? Look at what they're doing. What did they just buy? You know, and we also, what are the things that we share with the world on social media? We share the best things that are going on in our life, right? We don't share the dark things. We don't share the things we're struggling with. Everything looks great, it looks beautiful, things we want to celebrate, posting how their family is, how beautiful their children is, how great their trip was, how delicious that dinner was, how cool that new car is, how beautiful their new home is, and on and on and on. A lot of these things are good things, good things to celebrate, and it's fine. 
But what does your heart do with that? What does your heart do with that when you're looking in other people's lives, maybe desiring to have that life, right? How about when we keep our pulse on the secular world? Again, through social media, this is readily accessible. Famous children or famous people from movies and, and television seeing the fame and the fortune of the world in Hollywood at all times. Movie stars marrying this person. This guy just got five million hits on his YouTube. Or he's got this many followers on Spotify, whatever it is. It's attractive. Our hearts are attracted to these things. We see, a per- we see a perceived blessing going out to these people who are far from God. They are at ease and we want it. Our hearts want it. We are, we are envious of it. And it clouds our judgment. And it starts to reel us in. We start to think that, that this is what it's all about. This world is where I'm going to find meaning. This is my portion. This is my strength. This is a slippery slope. He says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, but we want it. And as we are attracted to it, more and more we begin to question God ourselves. We begin to wonder what he is doing Why aren't you blessing me, God? I'm the one who wants to be pure in heart. I'm the one who wants to follow you, and and yet I'm struggling. Are you really good to me, God? Why should I even bother following you? So let's ask ourselves, are our feet slipping? Are they on the edge of a slippery slope? Are we being envious of the world Today, are we questioning the Lord's goodness? Friends, the truth is the world is enticing. It's enticing. So we need to prepare our hearts for envy. Okay? We see this psalmist. He is slipping. He's having a crisis of faith. He's, he's questioning it all. And the question is, is he going to give it all up to chase the darkness? What's the fallout of this temptation? Let's find out in the next few verses, 13 to 20. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. He's, he's confessing that he has seriously considered going the way of the unrighteous. He's questioning the benefit of following the Lord. Basically saying, the more that I'm near to God, the more that I suffer. He's confessing that it seemed that as though following the Lord only brings great difficulty rather than blessing. 
He seems to say that the more he pursues holiness, the more he wants to keep his heart clean and, and pursuing innocence, all it has ever brought me is suffering and rebuke. He's speaking the truth here. Truth that is experienced by the pure in heart. Since the beginning of time, from the prophets to the apostles, to those who fought and died for the faith to us here this morning, the pure in heart, the nearer that we get to God, the more suffering comes into our life. Jesus promised this. Right? If you follow me, you will suffer. Martin Luther says about this psalm, he says, This is a psalm that instructs us against the great offense and stumbling block concerning which all prophets have complained. Namely, that the wicked flourish in the world, they enjoy prosperity, they increase in abundance, while the godly suffer cold and hunger and are afflicted and are spit upon and despised and condemned, and that God seems to be against his friends." Now, I know in our times and in our church and in our corner of the world, we're not, not experiencing much suffering, right? We're not experiencing persecution like, like they were in the first church and throughout the Reformation and, and up, to, up to now. That doesn't mean we don't face persecution in smaller ways, that we don't face suffering in different ways as well. Perhaps... Your families have, have distanced themselves from you since you've become a Christian. Maybe they think that you're crazy. Maybe you have lost friends because you're not the fun person anymore. Maybe on your street, you are the person that's labeled as the Christian kook, right? Maybe your faith has hurt you financially. Maybe it has. Maybe you've had to give up really lucrative deals because of your Christian ethic, you couldn't make that deal because that doesn't line up with proper Christian ethics. Maybe your opinion at work is just scoffed because people think that you're old school, you're a bigot, you, you believe in this book. Maybe your health is suffering because you just won't receive that drug or that, that procedure that goes against good Christian biblical ethics. Whatever it may be, there is a temptation to question God when the world seems to be against you. It seems to be flourishing and leaving you in the dust because of your faith. So in these moments when, when life is extremely difficult, we need more than our own eyes. We need more than our own perspective. We need divine perspective. That's what we see here in this psalm. We need to see it through the eyes of God, through the eyes of truth. We see that with the author here as well. He starts to, to come to his senses. He begins to see the truth. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He would have turned away from the faith that he, he knew through the history of the prophets in Israel. And his turning would have an effect on the generations of his church and his people around him. His turning away would speak lies and it would lead others away. So we see him beginning to count the cost here. And then this leads him to seriously pursue understanding. How do I understand this? And he returns to the only place where wisdom 
True wisdom is found. He returns to the presence of the Lord. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task, right? He's not going to be able to understand this in his own strength, in his own wisdom. He needs something more. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And what does he see? He says, truly, this is the truth, like the same word, surely, Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms like they're already dead. We're seeing here that truth, discernment is only found in the presence of God. True, true discernment and eternal understanding can only come from above. When we have Jesus Christ as Lord, we have the very presence of God with us, in us. And along with that, we have the everlasting truth of God's word. So we have this presence of God. We have his presence in his word. We have the truth. We have discernment right at our fingertips. We have complete, unhindered access to the sanctuary of God at all times. There is no more separation. The curtain was torn in two. We have bold access to the throne room of God. We have vertical, divine perspective coming to us at all times. It's readily available. This should remind us of our study through the book of Colossians. Right? Setting our minds on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. True knowledge and wisdom only comes from the Lord. We see that here. The psalmist is, is discovering this, this truth again. It's opening his eyes. He sees the lies behind the glossy finish of the world. It is the wicked ones who are on slippery places. They are the ones who are going to fall. If they continue in that evil and their enticing ways, they're going to receive the just payment for all eternity for their sin. That is the truth. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of destruction. It looks good, it looks glossy, but its end is death. The wicked are the ones who are storing up God's wrath for themselves. And they will spend an eternity in just wrath for their rebellion. That is the truth. The presence of God shines light into our darkness. It opens the eyes of us to see the truth. It, it reminds us of our continual need to be renewing our minds in the Lord. And so we need to prepare our hearts for difficulty. We need divine perspective. Don't trust what the world's teaching you. Don't trust what yourself wants to teach you. Trust what the Lord has to teach you. Seek his truth, his ways, his presence. And finally, we need to prepare our hearts for weakness. You need Christ's unending strength. Verse 21, the psalmist goes on with this enlightened confession. He 
He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He's saying, how stupid was I? How stupid was I to follow you, to, to not follow you, to question you, to forget your truth. I was so caught up and blinded by longing for the word, the world. My, my soul was darkened. It was, it was bitter. I was angry at you. Anybody been angry at the Lord? You were angry at the Lord. I was pricked in the heart. The NIV says my heart was grieved. It was brutish, which, which means it was completely foolish. I was ignorant. I was like a wild beast. One who does not deserve your grace. Who does not deserve your truth. It's always good to reflect on who we were, right? To reflect on where you once were and what Christ has done. To reflect on when you were going your own way. We see that here with the psalmist. He's confessing that he was desiring the world. And it was absolute foolishness. It was dangerous. But then he reveals this amazing grace of God. That even though his thoughts were bent on leaving, the Lord was bent on saving. It says, nevertheless, in verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, just like that great shepherd from Psalm 23. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. The grace that God has towards his children, his grace is towards you. If you are truly is, you have abundant grace towards you. If you have turned from your sin and you have trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you have a cup overflowing with grace towards you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He saves and he keeps and he guides us here in this life and he will guide us forever. Even in these moments of doubt, even in those moments of envy and difficulty, the psalmist brings us back by the power of his presence. He reminds us of this incredible keeping love that God has for his people. That the ways of the world leads to destruction, but the everlasting presence of God leads to life. He guides us with his counsel. His very words, the Bible. And he has eternal glory planned for us with him. This should lead us to such a place of deep, rich, grateful worship, unashamed adoration of our great God and Savior. Knowing that apart from him, nothing else matters. Like the psalmist here when he proclaims passionately, he proclaims this vertically towards the Lord in verse 25. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The Lord is the prize. He is the goal. Heaven is him. He is eternally with us. 
This truth should be life-altering. It should be desire-shattering. It transforms our perspective. It redeems our whole purpose. When you truly get this, when you understand that the Lord is everything, the world pales in comparison. The world is foolishness. It is garbage. It means that God can bring anything into your life and you will still proclaim that he is Lord. Even when your heart and your flesh will fail, God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. The best place for a Christian is to be in a total state of dependence. Total state of dependence on the Lord. You need to realize that you are weak. The best Christian is a weak Christian. You know what I mean? You understand that you have no strength. You have nothing. You can't hold on to anything. You have no righteousness within yourself. You need the strength of the Lord. Complete attachment to him. Like a baby who needs to be fed. You have no strength. Your heart is weak. You need God's. You need Christ's unending strength. When you discover that, that's when you truly start following. When you, you release the burden and you follow the Lord, understand, Lord, I can't do this. I cannot do this on my own. I've been trying my whole life to try to earn your favor, to try to get my way there. Even growing up in the church, there is that desire. There is that temptation. It's about being good. There is none who do good. Not even one. You need his strength. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's a verse to build your life on right there. And so then we see the psalmist conclude here. We see that his eyes are now clear and his heart is being transformed yet again. In verse 27, he says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works, of all your works. Friends, the news of this Jesus Christ cannot be contained when you fully comprehend what God has done for you. It spills out of you. It is contagious. You can't keep it in. We are the ones with the message of a refuge. We have the message to tell people there is a refuge in Jesus Christ, a safe place. We were the ones who were once foolish and lost. We were going our own way. We were following the desires of our hearts. We were headed to hell. But we were saved by a good and gracious God. We couldn't save ourselves. Christ had to come. He had to come and live for us because we couldn't do it. He had to live the sinless life for us because we are sinners. And he had to die on the cross in our place. Those nails should have been in our hands and our feet. 
He did that for us. And then he rose from the grave conquering sin so that we could have everlasting life with him, in him. And he gives us everlasting refuge, safety, love, grace, and mercy. As you think about that, you think about the gospel again. We are people that need to tell that to the world. We need to tell them there's a refuge. There is a rock, Jesus Christ. There is one who has died for your sin. Turn and trust in him. We need to tell of all the great works of the Lord. That the laws can be brought near. That they don't need to try to be satisfied with the ways of this world. All of those things are designed to pull you away from the Lord. You can have peace with him. True peace, true prosperity in the Lord, in Jesus Christ alone. So I pray that you've seen this journey of this heart. The first verse in 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good to you. Love him with your whole heart. Turn to him. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you that you are, your word is always so full. We thank you that it always has so much truth and wisdom for us. We thank you that, uh, that we need your spirit. Your word teaches us that these things are spiritually discerned. We can't discern them on our own. And we see how the psalmist here today was, he discovered the truth by coming into your presence again. Lord, so I pray for anyone out there this morning that is struggling with doubt or with envy, looking at the world and maybe doubting their faith. Lord, would you ignite that fire within them that only comes by your truth revealed, coming in again to your presence. Lord, we thank you for, for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. We pray, Lord, that, that our eyes would, would rest on you, that our hearts would be bent on heaven, that we have no one in heaven but you. And there is nothing on earth that we desire besides you. You are everything. We pray this in the name of Christ.